Can you go? What? Ahoy, Goths! Ahoy! Oh, that's better. Oh. What a wonderful surprise. What did you did you finish early? No, I just I couldn't stop thinking of my beautiful girls on this beautiful day in this beautiful place. And I thought, to hell with it. Don't you have work but, to but, do with but, it? But, but, but. Butts off a goat's mouth. I'll put it next to your house tomorrow. A gift of a pair from a lady. Thank you. <laughs> now, what are we playing? The hangar that we've been trying to catch her. Huh. Horrendiferous sister! That's a made up word. Yes, it is. <laughs> Hurry, catch her before she flies away, Emma. Where's the Emma? West Wind. Come on, Billy. That way. Oh, she's a foul foul. Come on. Getting you down again? But perhaps my sister can help. No. Oh, God, no. I can endure. I will endure. For the girls. Just please. Good morning, Hope. Welcome. My name is Eli. I'm one of the ministers here in Ankeny. And we are finishing up a message series that we've been in for most of this summer called Let Me Tell You a Story. Uh, during this message series, we've been given permission to pick whatever our favorite Bible story is and just kind of run with it. And I think every single one of us who have preached this summer have said that's pretty much impossible. Uh, it's hard to pick just one Bible story that's our favorite. I'm no exception. As I was praying about and, and kind of going through my, you know, my go-to passages of Scripture, the parts of the Bible, the stories that uh, really give me hope, that, that remind me of God's love, I started to notice a pattern that most of my favorite stories have to do with the disciple Peter. And I don't know what you might know about Peter, uh, and so I kind of started to explore why is that? Why do I feel so drawn to his stories? Um, you know, there, there are certain things about his life that you might be familiar with. Uh, one of the most famous things he's known for is kind of a negative thing. Peter is known as the disciple who, who denied ever knowing Jesus the night that he was arrested. So Jesus is taken in, into captivity in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter follows and kind of tries to, to linger out of sight in the temple courtyard as, P as Jesus is under arrest and he's about to be put to death, and somebody recognizes him and says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And three times, Peter emphatically says, no, don't, even, don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of the guy. And this is after spending three years or more following Jesus, and Peter is deeply ashamed by this, and he, he runs off. It's one of the th things that Peter's known for. 
other negative things that you might have heard about. Peter's known for being a little bit arrogant, a little bit prideful, uh, a little bit dense at times. One time he asked Jesus a question that's so dumb, Jesus actually responds, are you really that dull? Why on earth do all of the stories that I like in the Bible have to do with this guy? And the answer's pretty easy, I can relate. I can relate to Peter. I think as I reflect on my own life and, and I see the ways that, that God interacts with a guy like this, I myself struggle with, with being arrogant, with being prideful, with being a little bit slow, not getting the, the hint right away, uh, with being a coward about my faith at times. There are things about Peter's life that I continue to relate to, but more than that, the ways that Jesus interacts with his disciple Peter, his, his first disciple, the, the one who he commissions to, to be the leader of the church his right-hand man who sees Jesus do every miracle and hear every teaching, what I see is Jesus using somebody for some reason in spite or maybe even because of all of their faults and failures. And what I want you to take away from today is that no matter where you find yourself or however you think of yourself, whether you consider yourself to be a, a follower of Jesus or you're just checking it out and wondering, what is this thing all about? Can, can I really have a relationship with Jesus? If God can use a guy like this to, to build his church, to do profound things for the kingdom of God, to reach millions and millions of people, if God can use a, a failure and a screw up like that, then there's got to be hope for a guy like me. And for all of us who, who at one time in our life or another might find ourselves feeling a little bit lost or stuck. So what do we know about Peter? Who is he? And instead of just focusing on one story, I, I want to trace the, the, the arc of his entire life as best we're able from the, the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because when you start to tie in all of the stories, the information that we know about him, we get kind of an interesting picture, reasons why Jesus might be drawn to a guy like this. So Peter grew up in uh, Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northern edge. And um, in the Bible, when you read these different accounts, sometimes this body of water is called the Sea of Galilee. That's what the Hebrew-speaking people called it. Uh, it. It's also written down as the Lake of Gennesaret, which is what the, the Greek-speaking people would have called it. So it's the same, same place. Uh, and it's kind of the reason why you also see Peter being called Simon in the Bible. Same thing, it's just different languages all colliding at the same time. That's the one guy. So if you see Simon, Peter, same guy. He grows up and is raised in the town of Capernaum. Jesus is raised nearby. Nazareth is not too far away from here. And Peter, we are told when Jesus meets him, is fishing on the shore with his brother Andrew. And there's something interesting about the, the details that we might move too quickly past. So Peter and Andrew are brothers and they're fishing. And then it says that their, their partners, James and John, are fishing with their father, Zebedee. And they have a father to fish with. Peter and Andrew don't. And we also hear pretty quickly that Peter has a unique living situation. He lives at home with his mother-in-law, who is sick. And this is kind of a unique thing. That really wasn't how people lived with their brother and their mother-in-law. All of a sudden, we're starting to see some, some details emerge, a picture emerge of a, of a guy whose life is a little bit unusual from how everyone else is living at the time. And this kind of comes into focus, too, when you just dive a little deeper into how young men were raised in Jesus' day in Israel. 
So, so 2,000 years ago, there really isn't a thing called, called school that you could send your kids to and they would be classically trained or educated. This is a pretty rural community. You're either fishing or farming, having orchards, vineyards, raising animals, things like that. But in ancient Israel, they had developed over a few hundred years a, a pretty solid rabbinical training system that you could be educated in the scriptures and trained to become a rabbi. That was basically the education that was available to you if you were a young boy. So at a certain age, Peter and Andrew, these brothers, and James and John in Capernaum, they would have been sent to the local synagogue. And we actually know who that synagogue official was, Jairus. Pastor Ashley preached about his daughter a few weeks ago. This is a pretty tight-knit community in Capernaum. It's not a big town. And Jesus is living there at the same time. Well, well, these boys would have been raised up and brought into the synagogue. And basically, the training would have started eight or nine years old and said, okay, you are going to read, start with the first five books of what we call the Old Testament in Christianity. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, these make up the Torah, the law of the Jewish Bible. And, you know, not everyone had a copy like we do. There was a big scroll that would be kept at the synagogue, and you'd read from that. The expectation is that over the course of a couple of years, your elementary school is you would memorize these books. I mean, imagine the motivation coming back from summer break and being like, okay, we're going to memorize that. We don't even like to read that these days. And that was their early training. And this whole system was designed to, to weed people out. You know, if you weren't bright enough to make the cut, if you couldn't memorize it or show enough interest, then it was no big deal. You'd just be told, okay, you can, just, you can go home, work with your father, learn the family trade, they will apprentice you, and you will carry on in your family's chosen profession. And that would continue over a few sessions. As you got older, you'd memorize more parts of the Bible, the prophets, the writings, the histories, the Psalms. And further and further through the progression, if you couldn't show that you could make the cut, if you couldn't keep up, if you couldn't, uh, you know, latch on to these important ideas, same thing, you'd just be sent home, go and work with your father, and they will train you up in the family profession. And so at some point, we know if, if Peter and Andrew are fishing together, they had been told you didn't make the cut. You, you don't have what it takes to study to be a rabbi in the local synagogue. Your education is over. Go home and, and work with your father, but we don't know where Peter's father is. It's not talked about. And we find out that Peter has a mother-in-law who he lives with, but we don't know where his wife is. Uh, church tradition holds that, that Peter uh, is a widower, that his wife had died at a pretty early age. He's only in his early 30s at this point. So, so all of a sudden, the, the, this, this picture of a man becomes a little bit clearer who was told at a certain point that he didn't have what it takes to be educated and trained. He was told to go home and work with his family, but he doesn't have a family to go home to and work with. And the wife that he had married and the family that he wanted to start didn't really work out. The, the Peter looks to be the type of man for whom life has not gone the way he thought it would. The, the, the dreams and the ambitions that he had haven't really panned out. He wanted to do certain things. There were things that he was dreaming about. Not, not extravagant things, just regular, everyday things. Having a family, having a career. And it doesn't seem that life is going the way that he wanted it to go. The clip that we watched at the beginning of this message is from a, a great movie called Saving Mr. Banks. 
came out a, a few years ago, and, and this movie tells the true story of the author Pamela Travers. P.L. Travers is her pen name. She wrote the books that Mary Poppins is based on. So they were a set of books that she wrote uh, around the early part of the 20th century. And then the movie, Saving Mr. Banks, uh, shows her early life, her young life, but also her interaction with Walt Disney in the early 60s as he gets the movie rights to make the movie Mary Poppins. And it's a fascinating movie because um, she had a unique growing up experience. She was actually born and raised in rural Australia, uh, one of three daughters of, of her father who himself was a failed bank manager. You kind of get this sense from this clip uh, that his life is not really going the way that he wants it to go. Her, her father struggles to keep a job. In, in the movie, you see them bounce from bank to bank as he gets fired for um, not being attentive, for using alcohol to cope with his stress. He, he just wants to be at home with his family, and yet he feels like he is stuck in this type of work that isn't really giving him much joy. That life for him has not really gone the way that he wanted it to go. And so uh, P.L. Travers, when she's writing her characters for the Mary Poppins books and the movie, she bases the father figure, George Banks, on her own father. And George Banks is a character whose life hasn't really gone the way he wanted it to go. He sings whole songs about his ambitions not really working out, his goals, his dreams. And he is stuck in, in a line of work that doesn't bring him much joy either. And there's a certain scene in the movie Mary Poppins, if you've seen it, where uh, the, 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 her children, Jane and Michael, run into Bert, played by Dick Van Dyke. And they're scared and they've had a bad experience and they're worried about their own father. And, and Dick Van Dyke sits them down and, and explains to them what it's like to reach a certain age when you begin to realize that your life's ambitions have not really worked out the way you wanted them to do. Let's take a look. Leave her alone! Leave my alone! Easy now, your old friend. They're gonna hurt you. Bert, it's you. In the flesh and at your service. You're filthy. Oh, perhaps a smudge or two. So happens that today I'm a chimney sweep. Oh, Bert was so frightened. No, no, don't take on so. Bert will take care of you, like I was your own father. Now. Who's after you? Father is. What? He brought us to see his bank. I don't know what we did, but it must have been something dreadful. He sent the police after us and the army and everything. Michael, don't exaggerate. Well, now there must be some mistake. Your dad's a fine gentleman and he loves you. I don't think so. You should have seen the look on his face. He doesn't like us at all. Well, now that don't seem likely, does it? It's true. Let's sit down. You know, making your part of but the one my aunt goes out to is your father. There he is, in that cold, artless bank day after day, hemmed in by mounds of cold, artless money. I don't like to see any living thing caged up. Father, in a cage? They makes cages in all sizes and shapes, you know. Bank shapes, some of them, carpets and all. Father's not in trouble. We are. Oh, sure about that, are you? Look at it this way. You've got your mother to look after you, and Mary Poppins, and Constable Jones, and me. Who looks after your father? Tell me that. When something terrible happens, what does he do? Fence for himself, he does. Who does he tell about it? No one. Don't blab his troubles at home. 
He just pushes on at his job, uncomplaining and alone and silent. He's not very silent. Michael, be quiet. But do you think Father really needs our help? Well, not my place to say. I only observe that a father can always do with a bit of help. Come on, I'll take you home. I think this is where Jesus meets Peter. He encounters him at a point in his life where he too feels alone, where he feels stuck, where things aren't going the way he wants them to go. And again, that's another reason why I feel like I can relate to a guy like Peter. I don't know where you find yourselves today, whether or not you feel like you're in that position where things aren't going the way you want them to go for you, where you feel stuck. But I see in Jesus encountering someone in Peter who he can relate to and he can reach out to and do something with in his life. I'm actually convinced that, that Jesus knew Peter for quite a while before he actually calls him to be his disciples. And, and when we, we read scripture just story by story or little bit by little bit, you get this sense of... Um, you know, Jesus coming along to the Sea of Galilee, and if you're familiar with the story, you know, he says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, and we almost get this image in our minds of these guys just dropping everything and almost in a trance-like zombie state, just sort of wandering off to follow Jesus. I don't think that that's actually how it happened. We actually see evidence in Scripture of Jesus building a relationship with these guys in Capernaum long before he actually calls them to be his disciples. In one instance in Mark chapter 1, we see a story uh, of Jesus and, and James and John, these, all these fishermen together. And Jesus and James and John will be on the next screen. Uh, they're actually at the synagogue together. So Mark chapter 1, it says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. What's going on here? Jesus and James and John are at synagogue together and they're leaving. Well, they're at church, right? They went to church together. It's, it's a day for worship and, and that's where they were. And many of you who, who come to worship here at Hope every week, you, you tend to come with the same group of people. Uh, you sit generally in the same part of the room even, which is helpful for me. It's disorienting when you move around. But you usually come together with your, your family or your friends. Maybe you go out to, to lunch afterwards. You make a day of it, right? And Jesus and his friends are no different. James and John are there. And imagine if somebody in your circle of friends didn't show up that day. You know, they went to church together. They, they heard worship music. It was great. There was a pretty mediocre sermon because that other guy was up there. But Simon and Andrew, they didn't call. They didn't text. What's going on? So let's go home and check on them. Let's walk down the street and see what's going on with Simon, with Peter, with Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Oh, that's why you didn't come today. It got worse. Your mother-in-law, who you've been taking care of, she, she took a turn. And they tell Jesus. And Jesus went to her, took her hand, and helped her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Jesus comes along and sees his friend who, again, is stuck, is struggling, whose life isn't going the way he wants it to go. And, and this one last, one of the last relationships he's got left, Jesus reaches out and he makes sure that she survives, that he heals her. And what's interesting about what happens next, again, Jesus hasn't invited them to be disciples of his yet. Peter's house starts to turn into kind of like a hospital. Word gets out that Jesus, not only can he teach and preach, he can do miracles, 
He can heal people. And people from the region start to come over and, and Peter's house becomes like this base of operations for Jesus' early ministry. Jesus uses that house to, to heal people, to receive people in, welcome them in, to teach them about the kingdom of God. And so Peter is witness to what Jesus is capable of firsthand. That Jesus' care goes deep and his power is immense. So this is where we reach our Bible reading for today. The movement continues to grow. Jesus' teaching expands. People come to hear, from it, hear him from all over the place. And, and in one day in Luke chapter 5, we're told that he was teaching at the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is right where, where Peter and his brother and his partners, they all fished together. It says that they were washing their nets nearby. And the crowd gathers to teach Jesus, and they're all listening. But the crowd gets so big, there isn't enough room. They can't see. So Jesus steps onto Peter's boat, and he starts to use that as a, a speaking platform. Now, that would be weird if you didn't know each other. Right? I mean, imagine you're out on a boat at Sailorville and some guy just gets on it and says, I'm going to preach from here. Uh, let's go. Wouldn't happen. They knew each other. Jesus knew Peter. He, he saw them by. Peter, I'm going to use your boat for a second. He gets up on it and they push off a little bit so everyone can see. He teaches from there for a while. And at this moment, something pivotal happens in Peter's life. This is a turning point for him. He's seen what Jesus can do. They've been building a relationship for a while. And Jesus is ready to give Peter a little bit of a nudge. He's ready to see if, if Peter's ready to be a disciple. So he turns to his friend and he says, put out into deeper water and let down the nets for a catch. Put out into deeper water. Peter, I know you've been, been feeling stuck for a long time. I know that life hasn't gone the way you thought it would. I know that the shallow end is a lot more comfortable it's very familiar to fish in the shallows, to, to stay where things are familiar. What would happen if you went deeper, Peter? What would happen if you dropped your nets out into deeper water? You know, maybe there's a lot of little fish over here. You know what you're going to get. But the big fish are out there. Peter, what happens if you take a chance? What happens if you risk something? That's what, Peter wants, or what Jesus wants to see next. He's giving Peter a little bit of a nudge. Now, what's interesting, and again, one of the reasons I relate to Peter is he has a pattern that starts to emerge in his relationship with Jesus, uh, that we, we, we get a very honest portrayal of this person, because what Peter says next is pretty familiar sounding to me, at least. Peter says, Master, we've worked all hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. Tried that already. It's not going to work. You don't understand, Jesus. How often in, in our lives, in your life or in mine, I can say that it happens pretty frequently, when it, you feel a nudge from God to take a risk, to do something dangerous, life following Jesus is not a safe life. He, he's teaching that to Peter right now, that, that following after Jesus is a deep dive. It's going into the deep water. You're going to risk some things in your life following Jesus. And he wants to see what Peter's going to do. And Peter, like me, like maybe all of us, said, I'm not ready for that. And I might have already tried it. We come up with excuses for why that's not a good idea right now. God, I feel like you're nudging me to go deeper, but uh, you don't know my schedule. Really busy these days. You know, maybe when the kids go back to school in a month, then I'll be ready to, uh, to, to dive in. 
Jesus, I feel like you're nudging me uh, to go deeper, um, but my financial situation really isn't where I want it to be. Uh, It's a little bit safer here in the shallow end. Uh, I need some time really to get to where I feel like I could take a chance. Jesus, I feel like you're, you're nudging me to go, to go deeper, to go out into the deep water, but you haven't seen that neighborhood. I can't raise my kids there. The schools aren't the best, and what might happen? It's not safe. And on and on we go. We make up excuses for why Jesus is nudged to go deeper, to take a chance, to risk things for our faith following him wouldn't make sense. Peter's no different. What I find amazing, though, is that that what I think Peter shows and what Jesus is looking for is even if there's an argument, even if there's pushback, even if there's resistance, there's something special about Peter. Because when Peter finally agrees, when he does obey what Jesus is telling him to do, when he says, okay, I will take a chance, Peter goes all in. That's one of the things that I think Jesus notices about Peter. Why he would call a guy like that, who, who, who fails, who argues, who is stubborn, who is sometimes a coward, because he sees that in Peter, once he actually commits, he goes all in. He says, but because you say so, I will. I will go and let my nets out for a catch. Because you say so, Jesus. He goes all in. That's, I think, the thing that Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for a bunch of people who always make the cut who get the good grades. He's not looking for people who have all the skills, who, who have memorized, you know, the first five books and more of the Bible. Jesus is looking for somebody who is willing to go all in even if they feel unsure about it, even if they don't know how it's going to work out. And that's what Jesus sees in Peter. It's that characteristic, that quality that he's looking for in all of his disciples and anyone who would follow after him. There's a, uh, one of my favorite Christian authors is a man named Brennan Manning. Uh, he wrote a number of books, one of them called The Ragamuffin Gospel. I highly recommend that. Uh, this is a longer quote from it, but stick with me because I think this paints the picture of, of who Peter is and who all of us should aspire to be. He says, what makes authentic disciples, what makes authentic followers is not visions, ecstasy, Biblical mastery of chapter and verse or spectacular success in the ministry, but a capacity for faithfulness. Again, Jesus is not looking for all of that. He's not looking for a list of credentials. He's just looking for a capacity for faithfulness. Not even faithfulness entirely, but at least the willingness to try when Jesus invites us to go deeper. Buffeted by the fickle winds of failure, battered by their own unruly emotions and bruised by rejection and ridicule. Authentic disciples may have stumbled and frequently fallen, endured lapses and relapses, gotten handcuffed to the flesh pots and wandered into a far country, yet they kept coming back to Jesus. That's who Peter is. Not perfect in any sense of the word. Honest about his failures. Beaten up by life quite a bit but willing to try, willing to take a chance when Jesus nudges him to go deeper. And the reason I think Jesus does that, because that's at that point when when Peter does let his nets out for a catch in the deep water, they haul up so much fish they can't even carry it in. James and John have to come help. Jesus then invites these four men to be his first disciples. It's at that point when they show their willingness to go out into the deeper water that Jesus said, okay, let's go. 
Now leave everything. Now follow me. Now let's go and fish for people because it's about to get real and it's not going to get easier from here, guys. Jesus is wanting to see this because he knows that as they continue to progress, it's only going to get deeper and deeper and more dangerous and more risky. That a life following Jesus is not a safe life and Jesus wants to see this from all of us. Even if you're scared or unwilling in the moment, are you at least open to the possibility of going deeper with him. And there's an instance where, as we fast forward into Peter's story, into the disciples' story, we see things get more and more risky and dangerous. So Jesus' ministry keeps growing, and they, they're still in the region of Galilee, and they're kind of sailing back and forth across this lake and making their trip around both to the Hebrew-speaking side and to the Greek and Roman side, both Jews and Gentiles. Again, Jesus is showing that the world is welcome to his movement. And they're teaching one side on the opposite end of the lake. And Jesus tells his disciples after a whole day of preaching and feeding 5,000 people and doing amazing things, Jesus tells his 12 disciples, go back over to Capernaum. You know, get in the boat and go home. I'll meet you there later. And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray by himself. It's how he recharges his batteries. Sometimes you need a break from a bunch of failures with unruly emotions. So he tells them to get back in the boat and I'll meet you there later. And as he's praying, the middle of the night rolls around, and, and these guys who are in this little boat end up in the midst of a great storm on the sea. Now, something you should know about uh, the Hebrew people in Jesus' day, they were, and we know this archaeologically, they were not a seafaring people. They did not like the water. There's even parts of the scripture where, like, the best good news in the Bible is that there's no sea in heaven. It's just a great thing for them. <laughs> that the ocean is just done. No more ocean. It's great. Uh, and part of the reason why is that for a long time, there were a number of peoples that would conquer Israel from the Mediterranean Sea. So they didn't really go out on the water. If you were a fisherman in Jesus' day, you were already kind of a daredevil. So the deep water for them is a scary place to be, especially because there were only four disciples who were actually fishermen. The rest of the guys were, 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 were city boys. You know, he pulled them from Jerusalem and from different parts of Israel. They were definitely not used to the water, so they are out here on their own, and they're scared. The boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Again, they're stuck. They're literally stuck metaphorically for all of us, moments in our lives when the direction we're trying to go, the wind is blowing right back in our face. They can't move an inch. And Jesus sees this. And Jesus, this is in Matthew 14, when he walks out on the water to save them. This is where Jesus steps out into the water to save his friends. And I hate every artistic uh, representation of this. That should, and you've probably seen it. Uh, Jesus in these long flowing white robes. And the, the sea is perfectly still and placid. And it's glass. And it just looks glory. No way. Jesus was wearing his hiking boots that day, man. These waves were immense. And Jesus is crawling over all of that just to get out to his disciples on the boat. And the weather is so big that the disciples don't even recognize who it is or what it is. They're terrified. There's so much wind and rain, they, they see a shape coming towards them. Oh, how scared would you be? The water's already scary enough, and now there's something coming at you. Jesus calls out, it's okay, it's me, I'm here. Don't be afraid, I'm here. Jesus has, has nudged, and they've gone into the deep water, but Peter still repeats this pattern of doubt, of arguing, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Lord, if it's you, who else is it going to be? If it's you, 
Peter is still uncertain. He's still struggling with doubt, not knowing for sure if he can trust what he sees, what he hears. But again, true to his pattern, when Jesus says, come on out, he's all in. This is his pattern. Peter is all in when he decides to commit. You know, for all the the bad press that Peter gets, he's a denier, he's arrogant, he's a coward, all these things. There are still only two people in the history of the world who have ever walked on water. And one of them is God's son. And the other one is Peter. That's the characteristic, again, that Jesus wanted to see. Are you willing to go all in? Now, he doesn't make it far. He, He takes a few steps on the water And he sees the wind and the waves, it says in Matthew 14. And he becomes terrified of the weather. And he starts to sink. Jesus picks him up out of the water. He grabs him by the hand. They get back into the boat. And immediately the storm is calmed. Jesus calms the wind and the wave. It seems like Jesus was trying to teach them something in that moment. And and, and Jesus says to them, oh, this is the classic English translation, oh, ye of little faith, right? Uh, the, the, the Greek there, it's actually a plural noun that is combined together. It's almost like a nickname that Jesus has for his disciples. He calls them little faiths. It's just his pet name for his, his disciples who are uh, not good enough guys, guys who didn't make the cut, guys who are often fickle about their faith. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt, he says to Peter. And the, the Greek literally says, Why did you divide your mind in two? See, what Peter was doubting wasn't that he could walk on water. That wasn't a problem for Peter. What Peter doubted, why his mind was divided, is who Jesus really is. That's the point of the story, is learning for us, who is Jesus? Is he just one more person? Is he someone who's going to let us down? Or can we trust that if we take some steps in faith out of the boat, if we put our nets out into deep water, Can we really trust that Jesus is going to be there for us? When when we take risks with our faith, when we decide to follow Jesus out into deeper and deeper water, do we trust that Jesus shows up? And he shows up for Peter. He shows up for his disciples. And he continues to. And this pattern keeps emerging. It's not just a linear thing. This is how it goes in the disciples' lives. This is how it goes for all of us. And the stories that Peter has, you know, uh, the Last Supper when, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet and they get to Peter and Peter says, you can't do that. You can't wash my feet. Again, Jesus nudges, Peter argues, and then Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And, Jesus, and then Peter goes all in. Well, then wash everything. Just wash everything then. When, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's about to be executed, that the Messiah must suffer and die, to pay for the sins of the world. Peter pulls him aside and says, you can't do that. That's not how this goes. You you are the Messiah. You're not supposed to die. That's not what they thought the Messiah would do. And this is where Jesus famously rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. The Greek for deceiver, get behind me. Peter has this pattern. But, But that gets redeemed. Peter goes all in at the end of the story. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, again, if you just go bit by little bit, you get the sense that everything's okay, but it wasn't. The disciples were incredibly confused at this point. They had seen Jesus resurrected, but the Messiah for them was supposed to be the one who would liberate them from all oppression, 
You know, all oppression was supposed to cease, but Rome is still in charge. Their oppressors are still very much around. Jesus is alive, so what does that make the Messiah? Who is he? Can we trust him? So Peter, interestingly, in John chapter 21, we're told he decides to go back home. Peter takes some of the disciples and they go back to Capernaum. And Peter just says, I'm, I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. Maybe feeling like one more time things didn't go the way he thought it would. One more relationship, one more plan or dream or ambition. And so he just goes back to where it all started, goes fishing with his friends, and then Jesus shows up. In John chapter 21, Jesus comes to them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, right where it all started, full circle. They're at their same fishing spot. He sees Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they're casting their nets out, maybe not as deep as they should. And Jesus just invites them, hey guys, come back in. I got a fire set up. We're going to have breakfast. Peter dives out of the boat. Again, Peter is an all-in type of guy. For better or for worse, he's all in. He swims to shore because he's that excited to see his friend. John writes this gospel. I think John and Peter had a little bit of a competitive back and forth. John writes that that Peter swam to shore. The rest of us brought all the stuff back in. (laughs) That guy. They all get there and then they sit down for breakfast. And Peter and Jesus have this kind of their last conversation together. And Peter has grown so much, but he's still hurting from his denial. He's still ashamed of of his failure. So Jesus asks Peter an important question again. He asks Peter, do you love me more than these? Because he's he's about to tell Peter to, to lead his church. Jesus is going to ascend back into heaven. Now the church is up to all of us, all of us who follow him. He's entrusted it to us. And and he starts with Peter, do you love me? You might have heard this preached on. It's been talked about a lot. There are several words in Greek for love that we translate into English as love. And Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agape. And and that's that, that divine love, that unconditional love. It's a love that expects nothing in return. That's the love that God has for you. God loves you without condition, with no strings attached. And, and Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me like that? Because that's how much you're going to love others, as much as you love me. Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter doesn't say agape, he says phileo. I love you like a brother. Phileo is where we get city names like Philadelphia. I love you like a brother, Jesus. Jesus is nudging. Peter's kind of arguing a little bit. Again, Jesus asks, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter a second time says, you know that I love you like a brother. He, he can't get there that day. And what I find amazing about Jesus, again, the couple of steps off the boat that Peter was able to take, Jesus is right there to grab him by the hand. The third time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Jesus asks phileo, Peter, do you love me? Jesus meets Peter where he is. For as much love as Peter is able to give on that day, Jesus says, I'll take that. Peter says, I love you. And Jesus says, then go and feed my sheep. Love your church. Grow this ministry. Keep expanding. Keep reaching out. Keep healing. Keep loving. 
Jesus is willing to, to, to receive whatever Peter has to offer. He's willing to receive whatever you have to offer. As Jesus nudges you out into deeper water, if you're only able to take two steps off the boat before you start sinking, Jesus is right there. He'll take it. If that's as much faith as you have, he'll take it. If Jesus is asking you for unconditional love for your neighbors, for your family, and you're saying, I can only love them like a brother, he'll take it. He'll take it and use it. If you're only able to give God faith the size of a tiny mustard seed, the Bible says he will use that to move mountains. God will take whatever you are willing to give him as he nudges you out deeper and deeper. This is the course of a lifetime. As we grow in our faith, as we deepen our relationship with Jesus, he will keep nudging you because he loves you too much to let you stay stuck where you are. He will keep pushing us out into deeper water, into things that feel scary, that feel dangerous, because that's where the big fish are. That's the life that's worth living, following Jesus. So let's stand together. We're going we're gonna to pray and sing one more song. The worship team will lead us as we respond in faith and trust that Jesus is going to meet us where we are. God, we thank you for uh, this time, for a day to celebrate with our, with our family, our brothers and sisters. Um, I pray for unity in our church, God, as we continue to strive for the mission you've called us to, uh, that you're calling all of us deeper, individually but collectively too, that there are things on the horizon for our congregation um, that I can only imagine and, and dream about. Big things, scary things. But we're excited because we know that you are already ahead of us waiting. We get to see amazing things in life following you. So thank you that you invite us on that journey with you together, that we have each other to work with and to grow with. We give this time to you. We surrender our, our ambitions, our dreams, our plans to you, and we ask for you to bless whatever humble offerings we have in faith today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.